If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 23. <clears throat> While you're turning, I do, I would like to say something uh, before we get into this topic today. <clears throat> um, this has been a very unusual year, as I said, a very unusual year for, for uh, everybody, for you, for me, for this church, for every church, really. And I was uh, recently meeting with some folks um, that belong to our church, and, and uh, they were just sharing their opinions and their uh, feedback uh, regarding this year as far as uh, my role um, ministering to um, you and ministering to our online community and everything. And, uh, you know, they had, they had made the comment that they felt like my tone had changed um, this year in my preaching. And, uh, and, and you know, I really listened. Um, I took that statement to heart, really began to pray about it. Um, obviously, I don't want to come off as condemning. Um, you know, we want to leave room for the Holy Spirit to convict us of anything that is going on in our lives, but certainly don't want anybody walking away feeling condemned or, or you know, uh, we want you to walk away feeling like, okay, Lord, what are you speaking to me? Uh, and and I really began to think about it, pray about it, and and realize that it, it's true. I mean, in in a lot of ways, I think my tone has changed this year. And I, and I really, as I prayed about it, I came up with I think two real reasons why um, my tone and, and maybe the messages have changed a little bit in some regard. The first reason is because I, like many of you, we're grieving. Um, 2020 has been a year of loss. We have lost loved ones. We've lost friends. And I was speaking with one church member, and she said that in 2020, she had buried eight family members. Four of them within 10 days of each other. Now, one death in your family can really, really hurt, really harm you, wound you, and affect you deeply. I could not imagine having to bury eight family members in one year. We lost uh, Judy's mother. We lost Angie's father. We've lost Don Simmons, who was a good friend of mine. We've lost friends that don't go to this church, but uh, we're friends. Joe Passmore is a longtime uh, friend of mine. Um, Eugene Peralt, who is a ministry mentor of mine and a former staff member here. 2020 is a year of grief. It's a year of loss. And because of that, it does affect, um, you know, my tone. It affects how we, how we go forward. And the other thing that I really began to pray about and felt like the Lord was revealing to me is that, you know, for the past two years, two and a half years or so, we've been going through the life of Christ chronologically, and we have been really digging in deep. Has it been three years? It may be three years. I don't even, I don't remember yet. Maybe three years by now. We've been going through the life of Christ chronologically, and, and uh, <clears throat> um, Christ's tone changes as he gets closer and closer to the cross. We've seen some of the things that Jesus has said be a little bit more confrontational to the disciples and to the religious leaders. Um, but also, 
you know, and, and, I, and I don't want this to come off as me excusing any, me saying it. Yeah, I can just get up here and say whatever I want, and y'all just have to deal with it. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying as we go into the Bible and as we wrestle with the Bible, it absolutely should change us. And that, that we don't go into reading the Bible and studying the Bible to change it, but it should change us. And in some ways, certainly I have felt that. I have felt this immediacy that, I mean, we look at the news and the things going on in our world and we know that the time is short. I think, I think most of us see the world around us and we recognize the time is short. It's time to stop playing games. We cannot look at the world around us and say, you know what, I've still got 20 years, I've still got 30 years, I've still got 40 years to live however I want to live and then I will come to Christ. We cannot look at the world today, read what the Bible says about what, will, what the end times will look like and continue to say that. The time is short. And every one of us needs to make up our mind. We need to live a life worthy of Christ coming for us. A bride without spot or blemish. A holy bride. That's what Christ is returning for. And so I challenge you. I, again, I never want to come off condemning. But I hope that you feel the challenge and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that as we dig into some of these issues that you would be willing to say, Lord, are you speaking to me? Is this something I need to deal with? Is this something that I have unresolved in my life? And if not, if you don't, if the Lord says, no, this is not an area you struggle with, then great. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ because the Lord is speaking to our congregation through his word, through the life of Christ. And we don't want to turn a deaf ear to what the Lord is saying to us. So we are in the final steps, this final week of Jesus Christ. We are at Friday morning. And uh, today we are in part 13 of that message called The Last Words of Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you that don't know, um, I'm, in, I'm about to enter my 25th year of ministry. And I have learned a lot in those 25 years serving the Lord from him, from his word, from the Holy Spirit, and from mentors in ministry from some of you. And one thing I've been privileged to witness is the final moments of people before they pass into eternity. Now, it hasn't happened often in 25 years of ministry, but it has happened. The things that go through a person's mind as they are in their final moments will be their last thoughts, their last words. It's their final opportunity to right any wrongs, to express any regrets, to make any apologies, to speak the final words to their friends or family members. And it is a sacred moment to look into the eyes of someone and for your face to be the last face they see before they close their eyes and slip into eternity. Beholding the face of God. We stand now in our journey through the life of Christ at Friday morning and Friday afternoon of Passion Week. This is the day that Jesus died on the cross. And he made seven statements that are well worth our time to examine today in our series uh, entitled Last Words of Jesus Christ. Author A.W. Pink wrote a book called The Seven Sayings of Jesus Christ. 
or I'm sorry, the seven sayings of the Savior on the cross, and I've taken my main points from that book. I strongly encourage you to read it. It's a, it's a very uh, encouraging, very influential uh, uh, book on this topic. If you have your bulletins, you can pull out the insert and follow along, fill in some blanks. And at the very bottom of that sheet, I've given you a few things if you want to go deeper in the conversation today. There's a video you can watch on Right Now Media, the book, The Seven Sayings of the Savior on the Cross by A.W. Pink, and then a song that you can listen to as well that will all work together with our message today. And so we are in Luke 23, and the first statement we are going to cover this morning is found in verse 34. Being crucified by the Romans and the Jewish religious leaders, this is what Luke 23, 34 says, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The first word that we come across, this first message of Christ, is the word of forgiveness. The word of forgiveness. It's so unreal to me that the very first statement Jesus makes, having been nailed to a cross, was a prayer. But it wasn't a prayer for strength. It wasn't a prayer for a pain-free death. It wasn't a prayer to condemn those who had condemned him. All of those kinds of prayers make sense to me because I would have prayed for all of those things. Back in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus reminded the disciples that all he had to do was ask the Father. And the Father would send legions of angels to his aid. But instead of that kind of prayer, with every breath more labored and more difficult than the last, his prayer spoken from his lips to the Father's ears was a request that God pardoned those who were responsible for his death. His prayer, a father, forgive them, was in perfect unity with Jesus' previous statements to his disciples in Luke 6.35. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Man, tell me something that's easy to do, Jesus. Tell me to like the people who like me. Jesus would remind us, you already do that. That's easy. Love those who talk bad about you. Love those who betray you. Love those who spitefully use you. Love those people who ask to borrow $100 and they never pay you back. Love those people who use you. Love your enemies. And Jesus embodied his own teaching when he prayed from the cross to the Father about the people who had nailed him to that cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What an example that Jesus left us to be betrayed and abandoned by those closest to you. Remember in Gethsemane, the the Jewish soldiers came out to arrest Jesus and the disciples scattered. Betrayed by Judas, 
To be falsely accused and never to defend yourself. To be publicly humiliated and beaten and mocked and scorned. To be convicted and put to death for the wrongdoing of others. We wouldn't all of us, if we were accused, if we were falsely accused, we would tell them, I didn't do this. I am innocent of this charge. And if we were convicted and, and, and sentenced to the death penalty, we would say with every breath we had, I did not do this. You've got the wrong person. But Jesus never defended himself. He never asserted his innocence because he was bearing our guilt. When Jesus asked the Father to forgive them, it was the word meaning, let it go. Leave it alone. Give up the debt. He was asking God to not hold this offense over their heads as a sin because it needed to happen this way. He had to be crucified to fulfill Scripture. It was prophesied that he would be pierced. He would be raised up. He would become a curse. And Scripture says, anyone hanging on a tree is cursed. And Jesus became the curse for us. And so he had to be crucified in order to fulfill Scripture. The Romans and the Jewish leaders, they had to conspire to complete this requirement of prophecy. And if God told them, don't forgive them for what they're doing, guess what? They would not be forgiven. The Romans, the Jewish leaders didn't understand what they were doing. And because of his manner of life and death, it testified to the innocence of those who watched him die. So he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The second statement, and I apologize, because each one of these seven statements could be a sermon in and of itself, but we're going to go through all seven today. So it's going to be about, you know, a little bit of a whirlwind. That's why I'm giving you these resources so you can go deeper on this. The second statement is found in Luke 23, 42 through 43. And he, which is one of the disciples, oh, I'm sorry, not one of the disciples, one of the thieves on a cross next to Jesus. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And so the second word is the word of salvation. The word of salvation. The more I study the life of Christ, the more I realize that it is so absolutely like his character to put himself exactly where he did between two thieves. Because they both had equal access to Christ. One understood that, and the other did not. They both had the opportunity to read what Pilate wrote and had nailed above the head of Jesus, that he was the king of the Jews. They both could hang on the cross, and they could watch his demeanor as he took each breath and spoke forgiveness to those who nailed him to the cross. Earlier in Luke's passage, one of the criminals crucified alongside Jesus mocked him. He said, aren't you the Messiah? Then save yourself and save us too. But the other criminal spoke up and said, don't you fear God? We have been condemned for the evil deeds we have done, but this man has done nothing wrong. 
And so turning to Jesus, this criminal that committed an offense worthy of crucifixion, not just flogging, not just censure, not just paying a fine, but a criminal offense worthy of crucifixion, this criminal turned to Jesus and he asked Jesus to remember him. Just remember me. He didn't ask for anything other than that. He didn't ask for heavenly rewards. He didn't ask for salvation. But what did Jesus say? He told him that he would be with him in paradise. He offered salvation to a man who had been caught, who had been found guilty, who was being punished for his own sins. He offered eternal hope to a man who expected none. He offered grace to a man who didn't deserve anything. He offered salvation to a man who was hopelessly lost. That's the kind of Savior we have because that is exactly the same thing he did for you and for me. When we were hopelessly lost in our sins, his first word was a word of forgiveness. His second word was a word of salvation. The third statement made by Jesus is found in John chapter 19, verses 25. And it's a misprint in your bulletin insert. It's not John 10. It's John 19, verses 25 through 26. It says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is often a reference, we believe, to John, the writer of this gospel. When he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Woman, behold your son. This third word is is a word of affection. The word of affection. ever had the opportunity to watch someone pass into eternity it's a very difficult thing to see I can't even imagine the heartache that Mary felt watching her son endure the mocking the beating the humiliation the whipping and the crucifixion that she witnessed did she feel the way some of the disciples felt like like that things have horribly gone off track And this is not the way it was supposed to be? Or did she remember all the way back to the words of Simeon when Jesus was dedicated in the temple as a baby? In Luke chapter 2, verses 29 through 35, Simeon, this old man in the temple, said to Joseph and Mary, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen Yeshua. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. 
Simeon prophesied that a sword would pierce Mary's heart. And at the time, she could have had no idea what that meant. But nothing wounds a mother like watching their own child suffer. All four gospel writers attribute not one single word to Mary during this time. She suffered, no doubt about it, but she suffered in silence. The words that were important were the words of her son. And while Mary was beholding Jesus on the cross, I think the emphasis was this transaction that Jesus was actually completing. In his next breath, John, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus turned to John, who was standing there, and he said to John, Behold your mother. In that moment of intense anguish and pain, Jesus ensured that his mother would be cared for. And that, that John would look after and care for Mary. And that Mary would be like a mother to John. This word of Jesus was a word of affection. He loved his mama. Maybe he remembered back to three years previously that moment in Cana where Jesus came with his disciples to this wedding just to celebrate, just to be there. His mother was there and so Jesus and the disciples came as well. And in Cana, this family was celebrating this wedding, but the family had run out of wine. That would be shameful, that they hadn't prepared properly, that they didn't have enough money to celebrate for with the, all their guests and everything. So they ran out of wine, and, and one of the ladies grabbed Mary, Jesus' mother, and, she said, and they said, hey, we've run out of wine. And Mary says, don't worry, I know a guy. So she goes and she tells Jesus, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, and it's, it's not as, as rude as kind of it sounds in, in English. He says, woman, what does that have to do with me? If you walk up to your mother and say, woman, woo-wee. Whoosh. Frying pan, chancla, whatever is nearby. I would not recommend you walk up to your mother and go, woman, what does this have to do with me? Don't think of it as, as confrontational as that. It's a cultural thing. He said, my time has not yet come. He wasn't prepared to start doing public miracles yet. But Mary knew, if anybody can fix this, Jesus can fix this. So Mary doesn't, I don't, uh, you know, she doesn't really engage that much with Jesus. She just turns around to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. And so that's kind of a guilt trip, mama. Now Jesus is like, okay. But Jesus loved his mother. And also, remember, he knew the Ten Commandments because he gave them to Moses. If he wanted to leave one of them out, he could have, but he didn't. And it said, honor thy father and thy mother, that it may go well with you, and that your days may be long. And all the mamas are like, yeah, pay attention. Listen to this. So maybe he remembered his time in Cana when he turned the water into wine just because of his mother's heart, just because his mother asked him to. 
when he, he loved her and he wanted her to be cared for. When most people would have been solely concerned with preserving their own lives, with taking each breath, which was a labor-intensive event, Jesus was concerned about others. He was concerned about the salvation of the men who nailed him to the cross. He was concerned about Mary, his mother. He was concerned about the thief who hung next to him on the cross. This fourth statement by Jesus on the cross is found in Matthew 27, 46. Matthew 27, 46, and about the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This fourth word is the word of anguish. The word of anguish. Jesus says this, but he's actually quoting Psalm 22. Because Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm from start to finish. It was written by David, the King David. But the things that David wrote never happened to David or anybody in his lifetime. And though David could not possibly have understood what he was writing at the time, it was all about the Messiah's death on the cross. Think about that. 800, 1,000 years in the past, David wrote about something that would eventually take place, specifically. And at the point of crucifixion, G Jerusalem was plunged into darkness. This is significant because darkness, the darkness fell over the city from noon to 3 p.m. Heat of the day, when the sun is at its highest, the city is now in darkness. And it wasn't a solar eclipse. Some people have, have come up with that idea. If, if you've ever checked out a solar eclipse, then you know it doesn't last for three hours long. This was a supernatural event. The darkness symbolized the judgment that Jesus endured when he was made a curse for us. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 that for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. When that happened, the holy and righteous God could no longer look upon the Son. He had been clothed with the sin of the world. He had become the Passover lamb. He had become the scapegoat that the sins of the world had been confessed upon. He had become like the snake in the wilderness raised up on a cross so that all people had to do was look upon him and be saved. He who was clean and pure bore our uncleanness and impurity. I can't even imagine what that felt like. To be cut off from the perfect fellowship that existed for eternity between the Father and the Son until this moment in time. To have lived in perfect love and perfect unity from the dateless past until this instant. To be forsaken. And I encourage you to read Psalm 22 to see all of the prophetic elements that David foretold about the day Jesus died. 
The fifth statement made by Jesus is found in John 19, 28. John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill scripture, I thirst. I thirst. This fifth statement by Jesus is the word of suffering. As the word of suffering. As I talked about last week, Christ suffered tremendously for our benefit. He was fully God and fully human. He hungered, he thirsted, he felt pain, he was sleep deprived. And expressing this statement of thirst, he reminded us all of humanity, of his humanity. Because it had to be a sinless substitute for our sins to be covered. You can't nail a spirit to the cross. You can't nail an angel to the cross. It had to be God in flesh. It had to be God in a body. And because of that, he endured extreme suffering as a man. One of the reasons that Jesus was so thirsty, and sometimes we miss this, is that on the way to the cross, Jesus had been offered wine that was mixed with myrrh. Mark 15, 23. While he was carrying his cross, he was offered wine that was mixed with myrrh, but he refused it. Wine that is mixed with myrrh acts like a sedative and numbs the pain. And Jesus refused that wine going through the most horrific and painful beating a person could endure and heading towards death on the cross, Jesus refused painkillers. If you've ever had the unfortunate encounter to go to your dentist and your dentist say, we need to do a root canal today. Let me get everything ready. Let me get give you the numbing gel. Just imagine for one second, already being in pain, dental pain is about the worst pain you can go through outside of childbirth. I'll give you that, ladies. I'll give that to you. I'll make that concession. But dental pain is difficult. But imagine telling your dentist, already being in pain, your face swollen and everything, and they want to do a root canal right then and go, no, 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 I don't need any painkillers, doc. I'm good. Just break out the drill. Let's get this done. No, you take every bit of pain medication. If they're offering it, you're taking it. The only question you want to know is how fast it will kick in and how long it will last. When can I take another? Jesus, already being in tremendous pain, refused this painkiller because he had refused the wine mixed with myrrh. He had refused this comfort. He had refused this sedative, this pain-numbing uh, drink this relief. Because he did all that, he thirsted. Psalm 25, 15 promised, or I'm sorry, prophesied of the Messiah, my tongue sticks to my jaws, you lay me in the dust of death. And so he was thirsty. His tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth, to his jaw. And he could barely say these words that he needed to say from the cross. And so he said, I thirst. So they take a spear, 
jab it in a sponge and stick it in or put some, it's called sour wine. It was really, really cheap wine that they say soldiers would drink. And it was basically just to give him some moisture on his lips and in his mouth so that he can say these final words. Every nerve was on fire in his body as he put on suffering and pain to bring us relief and comfort. Jesus suffered for you. The sixth statement from the cross is found in John 19.30. John 19.30, it says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Now before he gave up his spirit, he'll say the seventh statement. John doesn't record the seventh statement. Luke does, so we'll get there in just a moment. But this sixth statement from Jesus on the cross is the word of victory. The word of victory. Because his tongue was sticking to his mouth, the sour wine he received provided just enough moisture for him to utter his final two statements. And the first of which was this one. It is finished. What was finished? Christ's earthly mission was accomplished. He had done exactly what the Father had sent him to do. His work of bearing the sins of the world was complete. And that meant that there was no more penalty left to be paid for sin. He had become the once and for all sacrifice to cover the sins of humanity. Referring to this statement by Jesus, the pastor and author Warren Wiersbe wrote this. Let me read it for you. He said, the Greek word used here is unfamiliar to us, but it, referring to the Greek word, it is finished, but it was used by various people in everyday life in those days. A servant would use this word when reporting to his or her master, I have completed all of the work assigned to me. Or when a priest examined an, examined an animal sacrifice and found it to be faultless, this word would apply here. When an artist, I'm sorry, Jesus, of course, is the perfect lamb of God without spot or blemish. And when an artist completed a picture or when a writer completed a manuscript, he or she might say, it is finished. The death of Jesus on the cross completes the picture that God had been painting, the story that he had been writing for centuries. Perhaps the most meaningful sense of it is finished, was that used by the merchants of the day when they would say, when, when it would mean for them, the debt is paid in full. When he gave himself on the cross, Jesus fully met the righteous demands of a holy law. He paid our debt in full. Amen? Paul reminded us in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your sting? For death has been swallowed up in victory. And that victory is through the death of Jesus Christ. Since we share in that victory with Christ through his death and his resurrection, we must heed Paul's exhortations at the end of chapter 15. Be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that you're in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The final words of Jesus from the cross are found in Luke 23, 46. Luke 23, 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. The seventh word from the Lord on the cross is the word of contentment. Every single breath that Jesus took was painful. Because of the position of his hands and his feet, the person being crucified had to push up from their feet on the nail that was holding their feet down. They took each foot and put it on top of another and drove the nail through both feet. And in order to breathe, they had to push up to take a breath. And then they would drop back down. Every single breath was painful and excruciating. So when they needed for people to die quickly, because it was not a quick, you'd think, I mean, you just suffocate, but you actually don't suffocate because your, your reflex kicks in to try to continue breathing and survive. And so if they needed to get people off the cross quickly, as they did in this story, Passover is coming and they need to get the bodies off the cross, they would break their legs because you cannot push up with two broken legs. And then they would just suffocate. Yet Jesus did not suffocate because they didn't break his legs. To do so, to break his legs, would have actually broken prophecy where it said not one of his bones would be broken. Now wrap your brain around that for a second. Because when you read what Jesus endured, not one bone would be broken. Jesus pushed up on the nails, feeling every bit of pain from doing it, and said his final words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Isaiah 53 is a very powerful chapter in the Bible, and I strongly encourage you to read it. We often read verse 5, and we stop there because it's really good. By his stripes we are healed. We love that, and it's one we quote and, and pray about ourselves, pray for healing for ourselves. We often stop in verse 5. But there is a vivid word picture that exists in Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That first statement. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Even in the midst of the father placing the sin of the world on the shoulders of his son, the son still had total trust and faith in the Father's plan. 
Though Jesus bore all of the sin and the shame and the sickness, he knew the Father's heart was so great for lost humanity that it was the only way. And because he fully trusted the Father and his plan, he had no hesitation to commit his spirit into the Father's hands. One commentator said that this statement was actually, this statement by Jesus was actually a bedtime prayer used by Jewish children. And it shows us that Jesus died confidently, willingly, and victoriously, entrusting himself wholly and completely into the Father's hands. Does suffering, disappointment, frustration, lead us to doubt the Father's plan or trust that it's working effectively, that it's working exactly according to his plan. When things don't go comfortably for us, when we have to give up pleasure or leisure or a, our preferred plan, do we thank God for the harder path or do we ask God to make it easier for us? Are we looking for those painkillers on the way to the cross? Some of you have walked with God long enough and through some dark and trying days so you know how to trust God during those difficult moments. Others of you might not have, that, that might not have happened in your life just yet, but you need to already resolve this issue that when the heat is turned on, you will not turn your back on the Father's plan, but you will embrace His plan even more, and say, Father, if this is the way it's got to be done, I accept it, and I embrace your will, and I will still follow you, regardless of the outcome, because I know that I can trust you. When I put my trust in you, I am never ashamed. Never. Worship team, come on up. When I was a teenager, I was raised in a, uh, not only a Christian home, I was raised in a pastor's home. Most of y'all are aware of that. I, I grew up in a preacher's home, and uh, so at all times, uh, we had to be perfect, as Christ is perfect, or at least we had to portray that we were perfect. But, you know, being a preacher's kid, every once in a while, you want to you wanna do things that mom and dad don't really approve of. And so one time I was out with some friends and they wanted to go to a haunted house. Now I'd never been to a haunted house before. So I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I assumed, you know, ooh, you know, something could jump out and scare you and everything. And, and you know, I, I had no idea what to expect. I walked in the building. You pay, you get a ticket or whatever. You walk to the next room, walk to the next room. And it's complete darkness. Complete and utter darkness. I could not see where I was going. I could not see anything. I was told to hold on to the person in front of me, which at that time was a girl I was dating. I had to hold on to the back of her shirt. I probably yanked her all over the place. I was scared. I was scared to death. Because even when my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I could not see anything. I even put my hand in front of my face. I couldn't see it. 
And this was before cell phones. I know I'm dating myself. Y'all know I'm, I'm, you know, I'm Gen X. This is before cell phones and certainly before cell phones with flashlights. I had a beeper. It was of no use. I began to feel fear like I had never felt fear before. Fear that I'd be turned around and wouldn't be able to find my way out. Fear that something would jump out and scare me because, I mean, anything would scare me at this point. I could not see anything. I was, for the first time really in, in since my childhood years, I was afraid of the dark. It was a darkness that was tangible. And the reality is that I didn't need any scary monsters. I didn't need any zombies to jump out at me and scare me. I was already afraid. In that moment, I remembered what Jesus said three times in Matthew's gospel about people being thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I've never been so close to weeping as I was in that dark room. I couldn't see anything. It was darkness that you could feel. Your eyes search everywhere for just a sliver of light to give you some orientation to where you are so you can see anything. No light. There was no way out of it until someone gripped my shirt and brought me out of the darkness into another room where there was a beam of light showing me the way out. Christ saw the darkness of our souls, the damnation that we were destined for because of our own sins and plunged himself into that dark place to grab us and lead us out of darkness into his marvelous light. When we come to a revelation of who Jesus Christ is, we discover that he himself is not only the good shepherd that leads us out of darkness, but he is also the light of the world. He is the only means by which we can be saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And you better understand, as he himself said, no one comes to the Father except through him. There is a fountain. The song we're going to sing in just a moment. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. A fountain of blood that washes over our sins. So that we don't have to live in sin anymore. We don't have to continue down this path of darkness. Folks, you read the Bible and you know where to head. We look at our world around us and we see the selfishness and the godlessness and the unrighteousness, even the wickedness. People are inventing new ways to sin. It's evil. It's wicked. And the only thing, the only hope for this world is Jesus Christ. Not just the baby born in the manger, but the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins so that we may be set free from this bondage of sin. Jesus Christ accomplished that. There's nothing else you have to do other than accept his sacrifice. To say, thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness of sins. I repent of my sins. I ask you to forgive me. 
that I confess my sins to you and I believe you are faithful and you are just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That's all it takes. There aren't candles you need to light. There isn't money you need to pay. There's just a prayer from you to the Father and saying, Father, forgive me for my sins. I accept the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. And I ask you to create in me something new, something clean, and begin to read his word, pray, follow Christ's path. If you can, if there's space for you to do it, would you stand with me this morning? If you can't, you can stay seated. But if you can stand with us so that we can sing together this song. We want to worship the Lord as we close our service this morning and then I'll close in prayer.